0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Jonathan Pennington about his new book, Jesus the Great Philosopher. We cover topics like what does it mean for Jesus to be the great philosopher? What have we lost in the church by losing this conception? What does Christianity and Jesus have to say about emotions, about relationships? If you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at contact at LondonLyceum.com, or check us out online at thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, a place for friendly discussion and debate that is designed to generate deep and clear thinking. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew.
0: And today, I have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to Dr. Jonathan Pennington. Uh, And I'll confess, he was one of my favorite professors when I was in seminary, and uh, I loved every single class that I took with him. So... Uh, There's a little bit of me that's, uh, I guess, a fangirl to some degree, just because I've I've learned so much and I've benefited so much from his teaching. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him today about his new book, Uh, Jesus, the Great Philosopher. And before we get into that, I I mean, I'm going to plug just one second, his Reading the Gospels Wisely book, Uh, one of my favorite books of all time. I think is just a tremendous primer into just hermeneutical method. Uh, There's all sorts of exegetical and preaching gems in here. So I think if you haven't read it, you need to get a copy of it and read it. And despite what, you know, the Twitter internet would say this year, it is a fantastic book that everybody should read and I recommend it widely. So come at me if you don't agree with that, that's fine. Um, So Dr. Pennington, I'm I'm really excited for this topic. For those who don't know who you are though, so we have, a, we have a wide range of listeners. So we've got some listeners who are more into the philosophical side of things, some who are more biblical, some who are more theological. And I'm imagining some may not know who you are, or they may just know of you. I know of Dr. Jonathan Pennington, but I've never read anything from him. So maybe give us a little bit of background just about who you are, and then how does a New Testament guy get into Jesus, the great philosopher? What gets you into that topic?
2: All right. Well, thanks, Jordan, for that. Introduction that I wasn't sure where it was going, and then you know, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the confession. Not sure what the confession was going to be, and yeah. the uh, and then the yeah. uh, appreciated uh, plug for reading Gussels wisely. And not everybody on Twitter hates it. Just to be clear, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I that's happy. right. A few people have not always been happy with me, but that's okay. That's probably yeah. a, good, a good sign, right? Yeah. Uh, but anyways, thanks. Yeah, it's good to uh, see you again and talk with you again. Um, it's been some years. Uh, Yeah. So I do teach New Testament uh, at Southern in Louisville, Kentucky. I've been there 15 years or so. Um, I also direct the PhD program there. So that ends up consuming a lot of my time and energy for good and enjoy that a lot. I'm also a pastor uh, at a large group of churches called Sojourn. Here in town, I preach regularly and lead a number of ministries in our church too. So I keep busy. I've been married uh, 27 years. I have six kids, um, all of whom are around and we have good relationships with. And um, I don't know what I was supposed to introduce myself as. I'm really a gospels guy. That is how that's what I've been doing for a while. I did my PhD at the University of St Andrews back in the day, um, back in the early 2000s, uh, in Matthew, and have continued joyfully to uh, be a student of the Gospels. And and uh, one thing leads to another. This kind of this kind of relates then to the final thing you asked. I think in the intro is how do you end up uh, in philosophy? Well, I did my original doctoral work in. Publications in Matthew. Um, and of course, I had no idea what I was getting into when you're a PhD student, you're just starting off and and you don't even know where it's going to go. I ended up doing work in Matthew and then one thing led to another, I started teaching the Gospels a lot and then I started teaching a class just on the Sermon on the Mount. And when I first started teaching that, I thought, um, well, yeah, I know I know a little bit about Matthew. I can teach a class on the Sermon on the Mount, no big deal. right And I started teaching it and very quickly, I realized I knew nothing about the whole deep, beautiful world of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Matthew 5 to 7 is the is the single most quoted, um, preached on, um, commentated on portion of the entire Bible from the earliest days of the church. I mean, Matthew stood as, as a huge influence on the early church, but then the Sermon on the Mount particularly just became its own thing. And so there's this whole world of literature, whole world of scholarly and devotional literature related to it. So I quickly realized oh my goodness i've stepped into a beautiful big world that i don't really know much about and very quickly then i realized that i needed to learn philosophy so i don't you know i'd never really done much formal training in philosophy but it, particularly philosophy as it relates to virtue ethics and mm-hmm. as you guys know and probably a lot of your listeners know all philosophy in the ancient world was was moral like like the category of sort of separating out moral philosophy from non-moral philosophy, that's a, for the most part, a modern idea. You know, philosophy existed in the ancient world to help people live well. And that included maybe not morality in the total Christian sense, but at least virtue and the ideas of what it means, what is the good and how to pursue it, the good, the true and the beautiful, at least in the Greek tradition. And so very quickly, I realized I needed to self-educate in philosophy. And so I began a journey 10 or 12 years ago of just starting to read Ancient philosophy, especially, all for the purpose of trying to understand what in the world was going on in the Sermon on the Mount, and I and I came to realize that um, not only did I need that education, but by learning more about ancient philosophy, I began to understand a lot more about the Bible and what the Bible was doing. Um, not that the Bible is like captive to ancient philosophy at all, but in fact that that's the environment into which the Bible is. Coming out of and speaking to with its own distinct sort of vision and philosophy of life. And so that's how it kind of came about. So I wrote this book called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, which you didn't mention, train
0: Yeah, and which I should have mentioned because it is also fabulous.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, are, what are you supposed to say now? Why well, didn't I that book? But, but the, no, that's so the that I end up talking about. The virtue formative yeah. element of the Gospels, which was part of the journey, and then the next book, Sermon on the Mount, Human Flourishing, was kind of the next stage for me. And I particularly argue that the Sermon on the Mount is. Uh, a eudaimonia text, to use Aristotle's conceptualization there, that it's a a text about how to be truly happy. Uh, Now, the answer Christianity gives to that is um, unexpected uh, in the way that it shapes us, but it it is for the goal of of training us how to see and be in the world. And that led to the next book, the book that's just coming out now, Jesus, the Great Philosopher. And I often describe it as like... um, like i didn't plan out what i was going to pursue it's like once i got near the end of one project or book i then i saw like what the next one should be and i you know that's been a really pleasurable way to do it so i know what the next couple books are is already now but i couldn't really see them until i turned the corner until i leapfrogged from one lily pad to another Mm -hmm. and so the current book jesus the great philosopher really is a it's the culmination not the completion but the culmination of these many steps of how to read the gospels What's the Sermon on the Mount doing? And then seeing this bigger idea of Jesus as a philosopher. So hopefully that answers your question.
0: Oh, yeah, that definitely answers it. I remember reading it in your text on the Sermon on the Mount, that introductory section talking about the background of these virtue ethic traditions and everything. And I actually used it some for a a philosophy paper that I had written uh, for a conference. So I, I, I really liked it.
2: Good. All right. Good.
0: <laughs> so just have to get that plug in there. It's true. Yeah, I'm not lying. I'm not making it out.
1: <laughs> <Great>. So <clears throat> early on in your book, you use this phrase, uh, personal Lord and philosopher in reference to Jesus. And I thought that was neat. So unpack that for us a little bit. And uh, what what did you mean by that?
2: Yeah. Well, thanks, Raymond. Um You know, obviously that's an intentionally provocative phrase. You yeah. know, you know there, I had all kinds of, crazy titles over the course of the year as I was finishing the book, like Jesus, the wizard, which is kind of, you know, <laughs> a, a bunch of titles that would get, would have gotten me fired. Before <laughs> um, use the wizard, but if you may know a wizard comes from someone who's wise. Yeah. Like, like Gandalf, that's where that word comes from. Actually, or Jesus, the guru. That's another one, you yeah. know, and we ended up with Jesus, the Jesus, the great philosopher, which I think is good. It's the original one I wanted, but, but, Obviously, to say, and, and, you know, we had some joking titles, too, like, would you like to pray to receive Jesus as your personal philosopher? That, that's kind of, <laughs> of that introductory section, because it's just not how we normally talk. Like, yeah. we don't think about Jesus being a philosopher. And I think there are a number of reasons why that is. But I think the biggest one is that philosopher for us does not mean what it meant for the ancient world. Yeah. For the ancient world as I was kind of saying a moment ago a philosopher was someone who helped you live well. It was someone who was wise and they modeled the life their, themselves. It wasn't just a, a professor who's disconnected from reality. Um a philosopher was someone who had disciples. Um you know that language comes right from the philosophical schools then you lived together and learned how to be virtuous and how to be intellectual and how to play instruments and how to um live together in good relationships and and so the the whole idea is that and of course that what's interesting maybe it's not a course but the way that that continues in the post-Constantinian world is actually through the monastic tradition. If you've never, I don't know if you guys have thought about this as people who care about philosophy, that really the monastic tradition is the continuation of the ancient philosophical schools tradition, just in a Christianized form where you're living together in community, et cetera, with a headmaster who's teaching you, et cetera. But anyways, the point is that that, that initial step of the book is to say, look, uh, we've lost something. We've lost an image of Jesus um, as philosopher. And as I always like to say, um, Jesus is uh, more than a philosopher. He's, you know, as an Orthodox Christian, he's King, he's Savior, he's Messiah, he is a Lord, he is Logos. I mean, he's all these things that are more than a philosopher, but he's not less than a philosopher. He's also a philosopher. And that's an image that we've almost completely lost in the in the modern period. Yeah. And so the whole point of that opening thing is just to say, look, this is something that Christians used to say was true about Jesus, and we've lost it. Why is that? And how can we regain that is what the idea is.
0: So talk to me about what is it that the church is losing by losing this philosopher language? Uh, I mean, I can think, especially in Baptist life, I, I don't think philosopher language is anywhere to be seen. So what is it that we're missing when we don't have that there?
2: Yeah, a lot of things. Um I, I think one of the ways I describe it is that we um, have it's really easy to relegate our faith to being a religion rather than a philosophy of life um, and maybe we could um, describe that analogously with that our our faith becomes very only vertical and not also horizontal mm-hmm. so one way to describe it so we think about our faith as our relationship with God and maybe some implications in our lives as well as opposed to our faith or in our savior uh, is also teaching us a way of seeing the whole world and a way of being in the world so so maybe getting at that related to not only we make it a religion instead of a philosophy of life we tend to compartmentalize our faith as something different than our business life and our marriage life and our parenting life and our um, financial life, etc. You know, I think most good Christians would say, "Well, of course, you know, of course, the Bible relates to those things." But I still think we kind of approach it through thinking that it's we have this faith in God that's a religion, and then we get some help in our lives from the Bible. We also get some help from, you know, Warren Buffett or Steve Jobs or you know whoever else, whatever our hodgepodge of influ- Oprah, whatever our hodgepodge of influences are as opposed to fundamentally starting with the idea that Christianity is a philosophy of life. It's, it is a whole, it's inviting us into a whole way of seeing and being in the world that touches every area of our lives. So I think that's kind of the idea that we've lost, I think, to yeah. some degree, if we don't think of Christianity as a philosophy. So. That's good.
1: In the, in the book, you, you walk through a number of different big philosophical ideas, um, that are actually, you know, unpacked in the, in the text of the Bible itself. I think you give several from the old Testament and several from the new Testament, maybe start with the old Testament and give us, um, what are those big philosophical ideas that we see there, uh, in the old Testament?
2: Yeah. Well, and I I think I can answer it actually for the new Testament, old Testament together, because, um, what I show there is that when you look at ancient philosophy, um, of all sorts, Greek, Roman, other ancient Near Eastern, there's a pretty universal set of questions that humans ask. It's not just mm-hmm. humans ask themselves. That is like, what is the nature of reality? Right. And we call that metaphysics. So, you know, is it, what does the earth consist of? Is it atomic or, you know, earth, fire, wind, whatever, you know, whatever, all those questions people have asked that. Okay. Um, epistemology, how do you know things like how do you know what the nature of reality is uh, ethics what is the good and how to live accordingly and to to live a good life uh, anthropology like what does it mean to be human uh, and then kind of maybe a subset of that which I deal with in the book we could call politics or relationships like what are the relationships between husbands and wives parents and children friendship government etc so those those are like universal human questions that people have been Asking for as long as we know humans have been thinking, right? And what you find when you read the ancient philosophers, as you guys both well know, they cared a lot about those topics and they wrote whole books on them and had discourses on them. You think of Plato's Republic or you know any number of other things, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, whatever it is. But once you sort of recognize that those are universal human questions, what I show in the book is that when you turn to the Bible, it turns out the Bible Cares about those questions too, and in fact is offering remarkably thoughtful and sophisticated answers to those great those great human questions. That that the, again, it's not the Bible is not just about the religious part of our lives, and then the human part we have to get answers. Otherwise, when you look at the Bible with that with that set of questions, you're like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what it's arguing from Genesis one one on. It's giving you a metaphysic. It's telling you what is the good it's telling you how do you know things only through God revealing things and then how do you live in relationships with each other what does it mean to be human so all the great philosophical questions the bible is like really kicks butt at to use a technical term and (laughs) very 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 thoughtful answers and for me that was like a real eye-opening moment right realize oh you know this this i don't have to like get those i don't have to get a ton of help from other places i can i can get help from lots of other places but i don't have to think Bible is separate from those great human questions. In fact, it has really good answers to them. So. I do good. think
1: you, you use an analogy in the book about a chest of drawers, and I, th- I think it's a, a really good analogy to explain how we've kind of compartmentalized our our lives uh, in, in such a way that we kind of um, just oh, the Bible. And you, you've already hinted at this, but the Bible only only speaks to this part of my, part of my life. Maybe explain what you're doing with that analogy, because I thought that was really helpful when I saw it in the
2: book. Yeah, good. There's even a little picture of a chest of drawers in there, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's another way of getting at what we're trying to talk about here, and that is that, again, we've stopped asking the Bible and God about some of the most important questions that drive our lives. So even those of us who are faithful believers and we really care about Holy Scripture, we go to the Bible for a bunch of other answers. Like, again, what does it mean to believe in God? And, you know, should you sleep around or, you know, whatever other questions we have. But there's actually um, so much more in the Bible because God cares about our whole human existence. So there are explanations of how the world works and how to pursue the good. And again, how to pursue friendships and what, relationship should look like, et cetera. And so I'm trying to tear down the chest of drawers and say, maybe this isn't a good analogy because there's actually an advantage to a chest of drawers. It's nice to not have your socks mixed up with your teeth. I get it, right? But, but so generally chest of drawers are good things. But the point is that the Bible is not just dealing with this tiny little upper corner of our lives, like the the little Jesus drawer. But in fact the Bible is the whole house that we're being invited to live into. Mm-hmm.
0: That's good. So you've got a section on, I guess, you title educating emotions. And I think this is really helpful. So I want to just talk about some of the big ideas. So what does it mean that Christianity has something to say to to our emotions? I mean, how does this differ from other philosophical views? Maybe, I mean, maybe we talk about just broad, you know, stoicism and others, uh, or maybe we talk about contemporary self-help understandings of mm-hmm. our emotions.
2: Yeah, that's, um, that was one of the most enjoyable and, uh, sections of working on that book and, and it's already turned out and maybe you guys can provide some links and in your information. I've given a lot of talks uh, on this as a result, including mm-hmm. at my church, at the village church in Denton, um, uh, some talks in October of 2020, uh, for a group of Anglican churches, um, because this this is a real this is a really real and important issue uh, for all of us, I think. So yep. the how that works out in the book is that in the first half of the book, I show that the Bible is a philosophy and that Jesus is a is a philosopher in this ancient sense in this rich, robust, non just of drawers sense. Yeah. The second half of the book, I take just three of the ways in which recapturing that idea can help us live well. And so there's other areas we could take up. And in the next book, I'm going to, uh, Lord willing, talk about um, what it means to be human more. I'm going to revisit awesome. the issue of what it means to be human, uh, which is a whole big topic, of course. But, it, but the three topics I deal with are in the second half of the book are emotions. And so what does is, what is ancient philosophy and modern philosophy say about emotions? Then what does the Bible say? Uh, relationships we can maybe come back to these, we have time and then being human and happy. So that the first of these topics, I want to say, what, you know, what did ancient people think about emotions? What do modern people think about emotions? And then what's the Bible say? That's the basic idea. And so, um, I, I explore that starting with the ancient philosophers and I was surprised to learn. I mean, I, you know, it was a few years of reading about this, but I was surprised to learn how much ancient philosophers, thought and cared about emotions. But looking back, it's like, of course they did, because they weren't just dealing with these abstract ideas. They really cared about how how to help people live well. And so, and they didn't all agree with each other on what emotions were. So there's a difference between Plato and Aristotle, for example, on what emotions are exactly and how to handle them. Um, and that relates to metaphysics, you know, because it's about how the world is made. It relates to anthropology, what is a human, et cetera. So all these things, you know, interact. But around the time of Jesus, or even you know, sometime before, and then sometime continuing after him, there was really a a pretty dominant philosophy um, called Stoicism, as you guys Mm. know, and it was very popular. It was kind of Oprah level popularity. Maybe that reference is getting a little old now. Uh, (laughs) Jordan Jordan Peterson level. Yeah, there you go. Right. Um, And so, and what stoicism was somewhat derivative from Aristotle in some ways, and in other ways it broke with Aristotelianism quite a bit. But the thing that stoicism was really good about, and I I love stoicism, actually, I, in many ways, I always call it the second greatest philosophy of the world, with Christianity being the greatest. And I also have some significant differences of opinion metaphysically about stoicism. And I've talked about that in some other places. My friend Joey Dodson has done some good work on that as well and others. But stoicism is really powerful. And the reason it's powerful today, the reason why you can still read The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, which I do. I read it every morning. uh, The reason you can read, you can talk about stoicism today or in the ancient world is primarily because they really helped you think about emotions. They helped you learn how to show up in life um aware of yourself aware of your emotions learning to control and educate your emotion educates better than control educate your emotions so that you're not tossed about by the whim of the praise of others or disappointments or wrong uh, uh, you know unfulfilled hopes you know frustrations whatever it was a very practical philosophy of life as it is today a lot of great leaders uh, adhere to stoicism today um, and so I explore all that and show what they think about it. And, you know, there's a lot of good in a lot of that. But then I turn to the Bible and say, well, and I also talk about modern theories of emotion with psychologists and neurologists, et cetera. Then I turn to the Bible and say, What's the Bible say about emotions? Well, again, I in fact I was very happily surprised to see how sophisticated and thoughtful and nuanced the Bible's view on emotions are. And I and I find it I mean, I've read a lot of stuff on emotions, modern and ancient. And I can say, I know I'm biased, but I can say I don't think there's any place I've read that is more thoughtful and rings true than the Bible when Mm -hmm. it comes to emotions. Because on the one hand, it completely affirms the goodness and the humanness of having emotions. Just think of the Psalter alone. You have a whole book at the heart of the Bible that is full of an expression of the full range of emotions, anger, frustration, joy, sadness, disappointment, fear, it's all there. And the whole Bible affirms the human emotionality. So in that way, it's a critique of a lot of philosophies, ancient and modern, that would say that emotions are kind of bad things or something to just be controlled or repressed or something. The Bible encourages it. God himself has emotions and so we can mm-hmm. get up it. All that, but I I think that's very clear, and that if there's no doubt that Jesus has emotions, right? He's the Gospels are full of showing him full of emotions. So, uh, so on the one hand, the Bible affirms emotions, and at the same time, the Bible gives us a very thoughtful philosophy and practices, really intentional practices on how to learn to educate our emotions in certain ways over time, so that we might experience flourishing. Um, practices like meditation to meditate on what is true about God. You see this old and new testaments. Think of Matthew six, for example, consider the lilies, consider the sparrows. It's an, it's encouraging to use your holy imagination to reflect on who God is, it, that it might affect, therefore do not worry. Right. It's, it's de- definitely related to emotions. Um, and also learning key ideas like contentment. I think of Philippians um, and, and how, strongly and you guys may know among your listeners if you read philippians which is a roman colony philippi is with seneca or other stoics right next to you be like oh my goodness there's like a ton of overlap here um and that's intentional because christianity and paul is aware of that i think that he's presenting christianity as uh really a, a more beautiful alternative to stoicism that emphasizes um good citizenship and emphasizes contentment in all circumstances, et cetera. But the key to contentment, Paul says, is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's this radical Christ-centeredness about learning to live a fully emotional life without being a victim of your emotions Mm -hmm. and without being controlled by your emotions. So I don't know if that was what you're asking, but that's that's, that's what I about the book, Yeah.
1: Uh, you mentioned God having emotions, and uh, last night when I was looking at the book, you, you do seem to affirm uh, impassibility, but you you suggest that maybe some modern um, con- concepts of impassibility have, um, not to put words in your mouth, but this, you seem to be saying like they they were maybe going a little bit too far, and they've they've lost something in 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 how they understand impassibility today. So, uh, I was wondering if you could maybe just. Explain to us what you mean when you say God has emotions, and how you're able to uh, affirm divine impassibility at the same time.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's great, and and you know, readers can look at the book for a little bit more detail. But um, although it's not super, I don't get into super technical, um, you know, theological debates. But yeah, the simple idea is that impassibility. Did not originally mean, nor should it mean in our minds that God is passionless, or or and well, this part of it is an English problem here. Whether the best word is passion. and so we'll just yeah. say that God, not not saying that God is emotionless, but that He's not controlled by His emotions. He's not He's not like the Greek gods, where you could wake up one day and He's like, you know, I'm going to go mess with humanity today. Watch them <laughs> throw something from. Him. Or something that, that would be the, the God is centered, he's not shifting shadows to use the language of James, etc. That he is always emanating from who he truly is, which is love, right? But, um, that doesn't mean that he is actually, you know, doesn't that all descriptions of him having emotions, which the Bible has a lot, must be just what we call anthropomorphisms. Mm-hmm. Um, that you write off all his emotions as merely metaphors mm-hmm. that are not who he is. If that's true, then he doesn't really love you. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm not saying that's the argument. I'm just thinking of an implication of that. Then he doesn't really love us like, yeah. because love entails emotion. He doesn't really have compassion on us. Right. Yeah. He doesn't really, he's not really anger at child rape. He just, you know, sees it as, inconveniently, not according to reality or something, right? The the reality is God is full of emotions and he should be because otherwise we would be more full beings than he is because to be, to have emotions is what it means to be alive very much. Right. And so I think we need to find the wise balance of affirming God's emotionality along with the truer sense of impassibility, but unlike us, God is not controlled by his emotions in a way that is ever out of control. Right. Yeah. So that's why I would talk about impassibility.
1: Yeah. I think you said, um, like the, the problem with, with emotion is, is not, uh, emotions. It's, it's the human part. Like, um, so, mm-hmm. so just, and I think sometimes, especially maybe in the circles that, that we run in me and Jordan, um, Maybe we do take that a little too far, and we want so badly to protect this doctrine of impassibility um, that that we are. We do kind of turn everything just into anthropomorphic language. Um, so I, I just thought when I ran across that last night when I was scanning through that chapter, um, I, I thought it was um, well put, and I'm glad you explained it for us. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah, I, I
0: don't want to camp out on that too much because that's obviously not the, the main topic uh, of— what we're talking about here, but I do think that's interesting. And I, I agree with you um, on the impassibility point. I think if we relativize literally every th- single emotion, I mean, anger, wrath, if um, love, if all of those are metaphors, um, that does seem to be really hard to understand what the Bible's communicating uh, in any sense. And I mean, I've always thought, you know, we're made in the image of God. So I do think that there is some sort of analogy between us, um, whether, you know, I don't think anyone's saying that our emotions are exactly alike, um, but there are um, real similarities. So what do you think when the Bible talks about um, emotions? I mean, how does that relate to how our contemporary culture thinks about emotions? Contemporary people have a lot of thoughts about emotions and how, how we handle them. There's a lot of like self-help books, um, yeah. a lot of um, ways to think about your emotions, and really, it's if, you know, if you go, I guess, broader secular culture, it's just kind of affirm whatever you feel, whatever you feel inside. That's what you need to affirm mostly. Yeah. So, how does the Bible's understanding and Christianity's understanding of of emotions differ from that? How yeah. should I be thinking about emotions compared to how people around me are thinking about them now?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you always have to remember that. Humans, both individually and societally are to use Kierkegaard's image are like a drunken peasant that climbs up one side of the donkey only to fall off the other. Right. And, and that's, that's the nature of humanity is that we're always pendulum swinging both in individual our individual lives. And then as, as society, and then, and what happens is because society is so complex, you have then people on either end of the pendulum at any one time too, you know, so I think with emotions, you see you see the whole gamut of it, don't you? That you have people that would say whatever you feel is what is real, right? Yeah. And there's, you should not try to control emotions. You should not, uh, if anybody tries to tell you you shouldn't feel that way, they're taking your rights away or whatever, you know, there's the whole world of that. Uh, and then you have, well, these aren't even always necessarily opposite poles. You have another view of emotions that says emotions are just chemicals. Right. And so you can and should control them completely by chemical by chemical reactions. And I start one of the chapters in the book by one of my favorite powerful stories from George Saunders, Escape from Spiderhead. I don't know if you guys you get a chance to look at that. Um, Saunders is great to read. And it's a and it's a situation where, you know, this government society or this co- corporation has learned how to control every single emotion by a chemical injection. Mm-hmm. right? And, and that's one view as well. Um, and. And then depending on your own rep- upbringing, you might've been grown up in a home or a church environment where it was not okay to have emotions, right? Yeah. Where they were suppressed, especially negative emotions. Like that. It's just your, 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 thumbs on your, on your heart that you can't feel emotions or a foot on your neck that you can't. And those people tend to then, when they break out of that swing extreme opposite way a lot of times. So we have this whole gamut and of, ways to process emotions and, and, uh, you know, it's not, it's something none of us can avoid because they drive so much of our lives every day. And the, my point is just that the, that again, the Bible affirms the reality of human emotions while simultaneously exhorting us to learn to educate them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the balanced way. It's both because the tendency is going to either say, I'm not emotional. That's for, you know, a certain personality type or whatever the reality is everybody's motivated by their emotions so the tendency is going to say that's not me or in our church or in our group we're not controlled by emotions you know those people suppress and what happens in those situations is it always comes out sideways i mean this Mm -hmm. is one of the the great psychological truths that whatever you don't process internally comes out externally and usually sideways you know and so if you don't want to deal with your woundedness and your pain and your brokenness uh, wounds have been done to you then you're going to it's going to come out one way or another. So if you suppress emotions and deny their value, that's going to be a problem. If you make them everything and they're not controllable and whatever you feel is what's true, that's going to be a problem as well. And I think the Bible really gives us a, a beautiful vision that, that, you know, threads that needle. Well, I think.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, I think in my own life, I think I struggle with more of just, uh, having those emotions, uh, you know, I'm much more, Farther on the Stoic, you know, Mm -hmm. spectrum naturally, so being able to express them is really difficult for me. Mm -hmm. So, thinking just about somebody like me, I'd imagine a lot of our listeners who are are more in the intellectual side or whatever have struggle with just expressing emotions. Are there things like that Jesus gives us in 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 the Bible that can help people like me to understand how to process and to actually express Mm -hmm. our emotions?
2: Yeah, you need to be more quiet, probably. <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I don't mean just in this moment, but uh, uh, I mean, just generally, you need to learn some self awareness uh, bits because it's it's interesting how you describe that during the after all expressing your emotions. I don't doubt that's true, but I don't think you probably have. Trouble having emotions. Mm-hmm. It's just that you've probably developed a lot of techniques to not pay attention to them. Some, some of it's personality and genetics. That's okay. I'm not yeah. saying everybody really has to feel them the same way or have the same degree, but we are all motivated by affections or passions and loves and desires and lusts and things. And so a lot of it is that we learn techniques from childhood on, depending on our environment or in our genetics, to not pay attention to yeah. what's really going on and a, a big part of maturity. And it's hard to really start this before age 40. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> there, there's a reason why midlife crises occur. It's because people finally start paying attention to what they really feel, but they often don't have a way to articulate it or to express it in a healthy way. So they usually like, I hate you. You I've always hated this marriage. I'm out of here. Or I'm tired of this job. Even those are all those are emotions that are just catching up with people. It's not that they weren't there. It's that there wasn't a there wasn't a place and a space to to learn how to process those and how to educate them. And so they finally just catch up with people, is what happens. So yeah. you know, I encourage you and all listeners to just start paying attention um, to what's actually going on. One of the places you can really start to do this is what makes you angry, or what judgments you make in certain situations. Those that those situations are good windows onto what's really going on inside of you. Um, emotions are really important because they they are windows into to what we value and what we long for. So that's helpful. Free free little psychology session right here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think a lot of us think that you know the goal of human flourishing is is for me to be happy. Um, and so maybe talk about what what does Jesus and, and Christianity have to say about that? Is that my goal as a human to be happy, or or is there some other uh, aim that may include happiness? Maybe not. I don't know. Um, what what is the aim for for a human being um, in the Christian worldview?
0: Yeah cuz I think I hear a lot of churches or Christians like just growing up where it's your goal is not happiness. Mm-hmm. So I think this is really interesting.
2: Yeah. No, it's a great question and the and the my answer to it is is once again going to be nuanced I think. Yeah. On the one hand I would say yes um that God cares about us being happy. And as you may know, at least from my Sermon of the Mountain Human Flourishing book, I have a whole chapter on what the word makarios means, yep. which is the, what's the word behind the Beatitudes and Psalm 1 and others that we usually translate as blessed. That's not really a very good translation in English because the word means, well, it's basically synonymous with Aristotle's eudaimonia or makar, uh, makarios. Um, if you've seen his picture of my RXA. you may see I have my car on the license plate. <laughs> it makes me happy. Uh, it means happiness. It means, um, but not in the shallow sense of that. It means uh, satisfaction, thriving, flourishing, maybe. Again, is the translation a lot of us use for those words. Um, and so on the one hand, I think the Bible very clearly cares about that. God cares about that. Um, this is what he himself is happy. He is the most happy being. And he longs for us who are, we've been made in his image and, and our end goal is to be united with him. And that is a place of, well, the way most Christians throughout history have called us the beatific vision, that beatus, you hear it in there. That means the, the seeing God that makes one truly fulfilled or makes one truly happy. Now in our tradition, especially Protestant, maybe especially Reformed, maybe especially Evangelical Reformed Protestant, uh, there, there tends to be, um, a, a loss of that and a de-emphasizing of that because we're scared of the bad versions of it, the health and wealth gospel, Joel yeah. Austin, mm-hmm. where you know, all of that we're like, whoa, whoa, or the you know, just big hair, mega church, you know, unreality and authentic. So we don't like any of that kind of happy, happy stuff. Um, and especially the reform tradition tends to, you know, have a really simple anthropology. You suck. You know, <laughs> the whole the whole anthropology of of uh, the reformed tradition is you're, you're a horrible person. You know, <laughs> not a good starting point for anthropology, theological anthropology. I think it's you're loved and you're, you're made in the image of God. You're broken. Yes, yeah, that's not true. And made in the image of God. So, so all that to say, I, all of that makes us very little scared of happiness. And we've seen the shallowness of it. And we've seen, you know, kid come back from camp, a mountaintop experience that doesn't last. There's all these things yeah. we have in us that kind of spring low us to be suspicious, deny yourself, take up your cross, etc. And so that's made us miss. What the Bible is really clear about, where he the guy God, God is constantly appealing to us to find life, to find true life, life in abundance, to find happiness, blessedness. Um, God's not afraid of that, and we shouldn't be either. So I want to affirm on the one hand, yeah, that is the goal. And the beatific vision of being in the presence of God and fully free and happy is the goal. So don't be afraid of that. Don't be ashamed of that. However, what's very clear in the Bible and its nuanced view is that. The means to happiness is suffering, actually, right. and there's no other way. It's the way of the cross is the ultimate example. Um, preaching transfiguration here recently or soon, and I'm just struck by it again. You know, the transfiguration, this vision of glory, Matthew 17, uh, where Jesus is revealed and all his his kind of prefigured glory. Uh, it's bracketed with discussion of his suffering, going to Jerusalem, being maligned, misrepresented, beaten, tortured, killed. Um, And that that's, that's the reality of Christianity. This is take the Beatitudes again. How do the Beatitudes end? Um, The final one, happier you when people persecute you, misrepresent you, malign you, speak all kinds of evil against you. Um, Or even all the other ones too, poverty of spirit, peacekeeping, keep peacemaking, all those are positions of lowliness. Those are things where you've lost your rights, where you've given up and let someone else win. Um, you're humble, you're turning the other cheek. Those are the ways of happiness. And that's, that's what's um, so shocking and so beautifully real about the Bible's vision of happiness, that the, that the low road, meaning the humble road, not the cut out somebody's knees low road, but the, the low road is the way of glory. Um, the, the way of the cross and embracing brokenness, uh, is, is the way to true happiness. So yeah, that's, it's a very powerful nuanced and real vision that the Bible has for happiness. And that's what I try to explore in the last two chapters of the book a little bit there.
0: Yeah, that that's really helpful. So uh, I know you mentioned you potentially have an, another book coming out after this. Um, maybe you talk to us a little bit about wh- where that, what, what's, where are you going to explore in that? Cause I, I imagine, um, I'm telling, I'm just going to tell everybody who's listening, go buy, go buy this book, Jesus, the great philosopher when it comes out, well, I guess when this episode comes out, it's ready. So go yes. buy it now, okay. um, wherever you buy your books. Um, I usually tell people don't go Amazon if you don't have to. Um, so find it. it. And we have a lot of people on the podcast who publish with people like Brill. This is not one of those. So you can actually afford this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go buy it. it yeah. I want to do it right <laughs>
2: I think it's 1899 or
0: something yeah i i think everybody uh i think it's a great introduction for pretty much anybody a, a layman or or someone who's more of a intellectual i mean wherever you're at on the on the on the scale you're going to benefit from the book you're going to enjoy it but you're going to do another book so i want to plug that while i can so maybe talk to me just brief summary where where, where your head's at going with that the next one
2: yeah, I probably spoke too soon in case I don't write that book. Uh, I, I have a couple other books that are, ju- are coming out sooner. I have a New Testament survey uh, mm. for those who might be interested where we try to approach the New Testament from a more theological perspective. I also have a book on preaching for those who might be interested. Maybe that's awesome. for your listeners that's coming out in the spring of 21. Um, but yeah, the next leapfrog idea um, that is still not written because most I've been playing golf for the last five months. Um, but, the, but the next idea, no, I'm not joking, um, is, is to kind of take this, the the next stage of this about what it means to be human and mm-hmm. something like being Christian, being human, like I have a, I need to have a sexier title than that. But the idea yeah. is I actually kind of fudged in the Jesus, the philosopher book in that I knew, so I, I said, there were four big topics of philosophy or human questions. Yeah physics epistemology ethics and politics I knew I was kind of lying because really uh, another one that should be in there is, is anthropology but I also knew that I would never finish the book if I stepped into that room you know yeah, the, yeah. The, so I decided to just in this book deal with those four and start to think okay I need, I need to kind of come back and so the spinoff element of it is when you look at the philosophy of Christianity which again is beautiful and nuanced and powerful and convincing and plausible and uh, effective when you look at it i think what it has to say about what it means to be human is massive now, mm. now the problem is that so are the discussions of that in philosophy and in science and all that and so i'm going to it's going to take me a little while to get my my arms around a lot of that still artificial intelligence i mean you just start thinking of all the ramifications of it but the the basic idea of the book at this point uh, is to again look at the philosophy of the bible and say w- what does the, what is the Bible's nuanced and thoughtful and effective vision for what it means to be truly human? Um, and of course, Christian reflection over the last 2000 years has a lot of good stuff to say about that, especially in the ancient world. Yeah. I think probably the last thing I'd say about it is a big part of it is it's a developmental view of humanity, which is, I think, what both the philosophical and the early church tradition really did well. Jesus as a pedagogue or as a, as a teacher of souls so that your the the human develops both physio, physically obviously, but also psychologically or soulfully over time, and that the Bible has room for that kind of human development and and invites us into a kind of human development is the idea. So that's that's awesome. At this point it's looking like right now it's mostly improved my golf game, but I'll get back to the books. So. <laughs>
0: well, I'm glad you mentioned the preaching book as well. Cause I, I think I've actually been shaped significantly by the, the insights that you've had in the reading, the gospels wisely about how to preach the gospels. Um, and just through coursework with you uh, been really helped by your tips on preaching. Well, so I'm really, I'm good. I need to go buy that book myself. Thank
2: you. Yeah. I'll, I'll, it's uh, 25 little essays on preaching that are real small so that you can make mm-hmm. little steps towards preaching better. So,
0: Well, I'll commend that before I've read it just because I, I, <laughs> I'm pretty confident about the contents that it will be good. Okay. So, uh, Dr. Pennington, this has been a lot of fun. I'm glad uh, you took the time out of your day to come talk with us about this. Uh, I think if you're listening, I mean, at least for me, if you've heard this, I think this is a good reason to go buy the book and get it Um, because there's all sorts of fun topics in here, all sorts of good stuff in here that you can share with your own church members, benefit your own life uh, to, to truly be human and happy uh, and, and recover a little bit of what's lost when we lose um, this philosophical language when it comes to Jesus. So Dr. Pennington, thanks a lot. And uh, for everyone who's tuning in, go, go find the copy of the book, go follow Dr. Pennington on Twitter, and if you're thinking about seminary or doctoral <laughs> studies, um, go talk to them as well. Because, uh, I mean, I'm a Southern grad. I'm a homer. So I'll tell people go there. Right. <laughs> so Good. anyway, everybody's been listening. Thanks for tuning in to the only analytic, Baptist, and professional podcast on the planet.
2: All right. Thanks, guys.